Father, we do give you thanks and praise that uh, even though there is tremendous amount of, of sexual brokenness in our culture, and not just out there in our culture, but in here in our culture, that Jesus is the one who redeems it. He is the one that offers forgiveness. He is the one that offers hope and healing uh, for those of us that have been broken and devastated sexually. Help us now as we open your word to be guided by the Holy Spirit to understand what you want out of us when it comes to this deeply personal issue of sex and help us to have lives that glorify you. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So here's one of the reasons why, uh, well, let, let, me, let me say it this way. A couple of reasons why it's difficult. Let's say it that way. It's, there's a couple of reasons why it's very difficult to have an honest conversation in the church regarding the topic of sexuality. The first reason is, and this is the experience of many of you, is that the church doesn't say anything, right? I'm astonished at how many people like kind of thought that I was going to get up here, say the word sex, and then giggle for 20 minutes, right? Because that's not been the experience in the church. And it saddens me as I counsel young couples who are working their way toward marriage, how few of them have had honest conversations in a Christian context about the issue of sexuality. It just isn't talked about. Or when it is, it's called bad, and it's treated like something that should be avoided. And so one of the reasons that we have to talk about sex and sexuality is because the church as a whole hasn't done a great job on it. And so many of you have never heard a pastor get up on stage, use the word sex and good in the same sentence and mean it. And our hope is that that will be your experience and that will be the experience of our children growing up because the Bible says a lot about sex, so we need to talk about it. The other thing that makes it very difficult is that it's the experience of, of others of us that, that maybe didn't grow up in the church or did, um, but, but sex is talked about all the time but it's talked about in the wrong ways and appealing to the wrong authorities. And so what happens when the church doesn't speak up about the topic of sex and look at the Bible for answers, we're left without revelation, and so we turn to speculation, and we just make observations. And the problem with a lot of those observations is they, they don't have an eternal perspective. At best, they have a very temporal perspective that might only, at best, include the lifespan of people now. And so we, we want to talk about it, but we want to talk about it in ways that are submissive to God's word because we believe that God the creator designed us, designed us as sexual people and that there's a way that we can walk this out and express it that gives joy to people and glory to God. So that's what we're after in, in hopes of talking about sex over the next couple of weeks. We're not doing it simply to be novel. If I'm really honest, we're doing it because a lot of the ministry of the pastors is dealing with trying to extend grace and mercy and, and hope to sexually broken people. That's where we spend a lot of our time ministering. And so if we can equip the church to minister to one another, uh, we'll be in much, much better shape. So we're not unlike anybody else. We're going to dig into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to explain some context, and we'll dig in and draw out some principles. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then there's a quotation here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts and make us willing to hear what the Spirit says to the church regarding our sexuality. Here's what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I always try to give you context around the Bible passage that that we're reading so that you know I'm treating it fairly, and then that will give you hopefully some ammunition to go back and study it on your own and see if what I'm saying is actually what God is teaching. So 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul had a certain office in the church. He had the office of an apostle. This becomes very important, okay, because it it establishes for us authority. And it's not authority that is arbitrary. It's authority that is derived by God himself as presented through Jesus and through the apostles. Now, that might sound very convoluted, so here's, here's what I mean by that. We confess here at Missio that Jesus is God who came in the flesh, And when he came in the flesh, he lived and breathed and ministered among real life people. The the majority of those people that were really committed to him, they're called his disciples. Eleven of those disciples, and there's a twelfth added later, spent time like with him throughout his person and work until he went to the cross. They were his witnesses as he went to the cross. Then after he went to the cross and raised from the dead, he appeared, right? This is all part of this gospel story. He appeared, And when he appeared, he commissioned people and put them in the office of apostles. He sent them out to be his witnesses. Now, to be in the office of apostle, you had to be somebody who spent time with Jesus while he lived and after his resurrection. That's what it takes to be an apostle. So if anybody comes to you today and says, I am an apostle of Jesus, you can say with confidence, no, you're not right? Because in order to be a true apostle, you have to have spent time with Jesus before he went to the cross. And none of us is 2,000 years old and spent time with him then, right? Now, you might have a gift of apostleship and be sent to certain places, but you can't be in the office of apostle. Now, there's one strange exception to this, and it's not really an exception, but it seems like an exception. And it's the apostle Paul, He's biblically one of the apostles. He's affirmed by all the apostles. And he did spend time with the people of Jesus. He could confirm the reality of Jesus because he was alive during that time. But he also spent time with Jesus after the resurrection. And that's why he refers to himself as an apostle, as one who is untimely born. His faith in Jesus did not take place until after the resurrection. Whereas the disciples who became apostles put some semblance of trust in him before the resurrection. But either way, he is this apostle that spent time with Jesus and with God's people before his death, burial, and resurrection and after. And he was commissioned by God and affirmed by everybody else that spent time with Jesus to lay down the foundation of these church communities around the ancient world. One such church community was founded in the city of Corinth. It was predominantly a Greek city, but it was made up of all kinds of different people. People that grew up in religious backgrounds and people that grew up in non-religious backgrounds. A lot like Cincinnati, a lot like Missio Dei, 
right? If you look around, you, you notice we're not a group of people that all grew up in the church. That's not my story. It's not the story of everybody here. But some people that are here did grow up in the church. They learn these things from mom and dad, and, and they're very grateful for it. And so we, in many ways, are like the city of Corinth. We've got people all over the, the spectrum when it comes to faith. We've got people that are coming from all kinds of broken sexual backgrounds, and that was true in Corinth as well. And so where we are in chapter 7 is the Apostle Paul, who is laying down the foundation for the church in regards to sexuality is addressing issues that the Corinthians were writing to him. Now, this, these are his, this, this is him in chapter 7 addressing specific things that the Corinthians brought up. But it's in the context of him addressing things that he found out about that they weren't asking. So in chapter 5, he addresses an issue of sin that, that rose up in the Corinthian church, an issue of sexual immorality, an issue of sexual immorality that was so unique that as he addresses the Corinthians, he says, look, even out among the unbelieving culture, they're not doing what you're doing. You have to address this sexual immorality that is in the church. You have to address it. And then he goes on, it gets a little bit broader, and then he closes up chapter 6 with, don't allow sexual immorality to be mentioned once among you. This should not be a part of the church. And so in the context of him addressing what's specifically happening, he's now addressing questions that they had. And the, the thing that they have a question about is, is it okay, like, is it the right conclusion to make to not want to have sex? Because that's the conclusion they drew, right? And so here's what I want to do. With our text this morning, I want to derive three principles of God honoring sex. That's what we're in the context of in 1 Corinthians. It's super important that we talk about it in our culture, and it's important that we talk about it as the church. And to do so, we're looking for three principles for God honoring sex found here in 1 Corinthians 7, although we're going to kind of pull out, we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to look at other areas of, of where the Bible addresses these concerns. So principles of God honoring sex or for God honoring sex. Principle number one. Principle number one, sex is a gift. Sex is a gift. This is the overarching idea when the Bible talks about the issue of sexuality. I think we see it here in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. And here's how I get there. The, the Corinthians are writing him a letter. And what they write is, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that word good is a vital word that the Corinthians were using. It means fitting and appropriate and sort of the standard to which we should all try to strive. It's the same word that when the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, was translated into Greek, when God looks at his creation, he says it's not good for man to, to be alone. It's the same word that's being used. Only here's what the Corinthians did. They, they may be familiar with Genesis chapter 2 and that it's not good for man to be alone, but they have concluded, based on their experience and their attempt to understand the gospel, the exact opposite thing. So what they're saying is that it's good for a man to be alone, right? It's good for a man to not have a sexual relationship with a woman, while Genesis says it's not good for man to be alone. And that's why Paul, right out of the gate, as he's addressing the conclusions that they made, he corrects their thinking. And so he puts in the word but, right? You have concluded it's good for man not to have sex, but let me tell you, 
every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. And what should they do? Well, the husband shouldn't withhold the conjugal rights of his wife. Neither should the wife do that from her husband. So what, what Paul is reiterating here is the same thing the Bible continues to reiterate. Sex is a gift of God that should be enjoyed. That's what Paul is saying. Right? It's not something that should be withheld. And too many people in the church, we miss the idea that sex is a good gift because we have wrong views about it. The first view that we have is that sex is gross, right? It's, it's something we don't talk about. And so what I want to do is I want to push back on that idea and say, no, sex, according to the Bible, is not gross, we should not come to the same conclusions that the Corinthians came to about sexuality, even though we do. And the reason some of us do this is because the church is so quiet about it. And so rather than talk about it, it must be something hidden. It must be something that, that shouldn't be discussed. It, it, it's not certainly something that should be discussed in public company. And so sex is gross. And so rather than discuss it, we just avoid it. It's something that's done with the body, and the body is a gross thing. And so we just don't talk about those things. And so what Paul does right out of the gate is he, he wants to form a corrective. He, he's, he doesn't say sex is gross. You've made the right conclusion. You shouldn't have sex. No, sex is a gift. It should be enjoyed. Now, I can understand when you start to look at our personal experiences and you start to uncover some of our stories, why we might think sex is gross. And, and I would say one of the primary reasons for that is because we don't experience sex according to God's design. It's not talked about it, and so what happens is it gets explored in the context of peers, not people who have wisdom and expertise and care and concern for the people talking about it, and so you discover it on the playground among your peers who have no idea what it looks like, and you start expressing it in very broken ways. And so for many of you, your first experience with sexuality is silly, it feels dirty, it feels gross, you know it's not right, but there's still a pleasure to it, and you can't figure it out, and so it feels gross. For others, your experience is that your first encounter with sexuality, or maybe any encounter with sexuality, has been fraught with abuse. Things have happened that you know shouldn't happen, and they happened anyway. And so you feel a sense of dirtiness and a sense of grossness. And so rather than having a, a, a safe space to be able to address the issue honestly, it just stays hidden. And that's why when it comes to the story, like what we're watching uh, on the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, we, we, when some people start to ask questions, how could this secret be held for 35 years? If you're the victim of sexual abuse, you understand very well how it's kept secret for 35 years because you sense in yourself deficiency and brokenness and you often blame yourself for something that you don't fully understand what's happening. And so you just don't talk about it. And so what we want to do, again, as a church, is talk about it and recognize this is a gift. It's not something that's gross. There's design to it and it's beautiful and it should create joy for God's people and glory for his name. But too many of us have the understanding that it is gross. And so I want to I push back on that and say it's not gross. It's something beautifully designed by God. And I'll come back to that. Romans, uh, well, here, here's what ends up happening. Some of us look at it and we say, well, we, we don't go to the, to the extreme where we call sex gross. But in many ways, especially in our culture, we call sex God. 
We give our time, our talent, our energy, our joy, our, our sense of, I mean, we give money to it. We give so much of ourselves to it, our relationships, that it looks like we're sacrificing to something that is a God that's ruling over us. And so again, I want to push back on that. I want to say, no, sex is not a God. Sex is not God. It's not gross. It's not God. It's a gift. And, and here's where I get this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, the Apostle Paul again, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so what we want to do is we want to be aware that what we do with our bodies is an act of spiritual worship. It's one of the reasons why over the summer when I was on sabbatical, I started getting very serious about my own sense of personal health. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I dropped 14 pounds over the summer. Amen? It's a good thing. It was hard to do, right? I'm keeping it off. I'm, I'm doing a lot of exercise. I'm taking care of myself. Why? The body is an important thing. What you do with your body is an act of spiritual worship, and it's no different when it comes to sex. And for so many of us, when you start to look at what we do with our bodies, we sacrifice them, we give them over to the subject of sex, and here's where I see this playing out. We give our money to it to the tune of 12 billion with a B, 12 billion dollars every year for the consumption of pornography. Not the production, the consumption, 12 billion with a B. Now let me put this into terms that might make a little bit more sense. The city of Cincinnati has an annual budget of about 1.3 billion dollars. That's what it takes to, to rebuild all the highways which are being rebuilt every day, all year long, right? There's always something, but all the money that's going into the highways, all of the money that runs the little choo-choo train that we have downtown, right? All of the money that runs the buses, all the money that goes into the school, the, the entire city's budget, $1.3 billion. So if you take the city of Cincinnati which the greater metropolitan area has about 2.3 million people, um, you multiply that by 10. And that's what we spend annually to consume pornography. Now, that might not seem as staggering until you realize that I work with a lot of young men and women, and we talk a lot about this issue of pornography. And what I find is a lot of you aren't even paying for it. There's a lot out there that you can just click on for free. So when it comes to the fact that we're spending 12 billion dollars to consume, not produce pornography annually, that's a lot of money spent on this, right? I mean, that's a lot of money. You can look at that and say, ah, this is a driving force in our culture. We're giving our money to illicit sex, broken sex, sex that does not satisfy but often leaves us empty when we're done. We give our joy to it. 70% of all men aged 18 to 34 visit a porn site every month. That's who admits it, 70%, right? That's a lot of us. 25% of all internet searches, this is, this is the, the whole, like the whole Google, 25%. I, I, I think over the weekend, I probably searched 15 things, so one out of four of those, on average, is a search for something pornographic, that's a lot of time spent looking for this stuff. Girls who encounter sex at a young age, 
If you are younger than 18, you are 10 times more likely to engage in substance abuse, experience depression, and that leads into suicide, or at least suicidal thoughts. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but sexual activity among Americans is way up. Pregnancy, way down. Activity, way up. You know what's up with it? Depression. Attempts of suicide. Now, correlation does not prove cause, but I think those correlations are pretty strong. Especially when you start to dig in among uh, uh, this new movement, which is trying to identify our very being with what we do sexually, and, and the suicide attempts in that community are even more through the ceiling. And so I think there's a deep connection between uh, sexual expression and depression, especially when it's outside of the context of a marriage relationship. Because you go into these sexual experiences hoping for deep connection. And when it turns out to be a one-night stand, whether you were hoping for it or not, your soul is created to bond with that other human being. And when it doesn't bond and you're left isolated and alone, you start asking the question, what's wrong with me? Why am I so broken? Because while sex is an appetite, it's just that. It's satisfied and it goes away for a moment, but then it, it grows and you want it again. And, and God has created us to continue to bond to another person because that's his design for it. And so when, when we give our, our, our time and our energy, it often leaves us empty and feeling alone. Not only that, um, it, it goes on. Like we sacrifice our relations to it. Do you realize the number one cause of divorce in the United States is infidelity? That's the number one cause. The number one cause for arguments is money, but the number one cause for divorce is infidelity. It tears our relationships apart. This is when you're going outside of a marriage relationship for sex and for that sense of connection, and you violate the covenant that you've made. Only 20% of people who are engaged in adultery actually admit it. The other 80% are caught. So when a, when a divorce ends because of infidelity, it's usually because one of the partners was caught. Now, I'd be a fool to assume that nobody here is struggling with that. Nobody here has that experience. I know some of you are wrestling through it in your own minds right now. And so let me, let me just share for you, especially for you ladies... If you're in the, the beginning stages of that emotional development, that emotional adultery, only 3% of all people who leave their spouse because they were committing adultery actually commit to the person with whom they were committing adultery. Only 3%. And I know some of you are like, oh, I'm going to be among that three. Okay, you're probably not. There's a 97% chance, almost a 10 out of 10 chance that you will not be committed to that person. And even if you are, is that the person you really want to be connected to? The person that does not keep his, her commitments. I, I, I hope it's, it's not. I hope that we raise the bar on sexuality and don't lower it. You're worth more than that, amen? You're worth more than that. Of those 3% that actually do end up with the person with whom they committed adultery, 70% of those marriages end in divorce. So it's not looking good, right? I mean, when you go outside of the marriage commitment, like it, there's travesty and brokenness all around. And my hope is that when that happens, yes, we will lock arms. We will minister grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and hope. That's why we're here. We're here to help heal the, the brokenhearted because that's what Jesus does. But, but I'm hoping that we can stop it before it starts so that there's less collateral damage, especially in terms when you're involving kids in this. 
And I know that when we work up toward uh, marriage commitments among young couples, as they look at their parents' relationship, they look at the way that things dissolved and fell apart, most people don't want anything to do with that because it's very, very painful. And, and, and I've said this countless times. I haven't said it for a while. I'm willing to walk with you no matter what life throws at you. I really am. I would rather walk with you through the death of your spouse than the divorce of your spouse. Because with death, there's nothing you could have done, right? Unless you killed the man or the woman, right? (laughs) Come on, there's got to be a little levity here. (laughs) But I'd rather do that because when it comes to divorce, there's, there's always a sense of deep pain of what was so wrong with me that we couldn't work this out. I'll walk with you through anything, but I'd rather go through the death than the divorce. But if that's where you are, we will lock arms and we will extend and minister mercy, grace, forgiveness, hope, healing. That's, again, that's why we're here. But, but too often, if you look at our culture, man, we've, we have made sex our God. And the Bible's corrective to this is sex is not gross and it's not your God. It's a gift. It's a gift that should be enjoyed. It's not a gift that will ever complete you. And that's one of the things that, that too often we're looking to sex to complete us. And what we're doing as a culture is yelling at anybody that won't allow our sex to complete us. And we're saying, you must not only accept, but you must affirm this because this is the very point of who I am because only in a sexual expression can I be who I truly feel like I am. And I think that's a lowering of the bar. It's a lowering of the expectation It misses the joy of what God has for us and it minimizes it to an activity that while good, isn't eternal and isn't God. All the married people can say a hearty amen to this, but sex, even good sex, will not complete your life, right? It's an appetite. It it can be a really wonderful meal enjoyed in the way that God has designed it to be enjoyed, but that appetite will grow again. So sex isn't supposed to be an eternal thing, right? In fact, when we get to the eternal kingdom, it's not a part of it anymore. God does say there will be joys at my right hand forevermore, but there is no longer marriage or people given in marriage. That's not gonna go into the eternal kingdom. It is a gift that can be enjoyed now, but it's a gift that's supposed to point to something greater. It's supposed to point to something greater. And here's one of the reasons I know that sex will not complete my life. We at Missio, we confess this, and this is what the church has confessed for thousands of years. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, right? We would confess that, amen? The fullest man to ever walk the earth never knew the sexual touch of a woman, and he was no less man. He was no less fully man. He was no less fully glorifying to God. You can live an entire life, never experience sexual touch, and your life can be full. Don't believe the lie that our culture is spewing at you that the only way to be truly satisfied is to be sexually satisfied. It's just not true. And those that have experienced, like, you know it. And what we end up doing is we keep going back to the same old thing, thinking this time it's going to satisfy me eternally. No, sex cannot redeem you. And this is the gospel conviction. This is the piece that I want us to change our hearts and our minds around. Sex does not redeem us. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can redeem you. Only Jesus can come through on the promise that he makes. So in order to explain that, we've got to pause and ask, 
What is the promise that sex is making to us? And I think the promise is this. The promise of sex is that it will offer us acceptance for who we really are when we're fully exposed and somebody sees all the shortcomings and all the things that we don't love about ourselves, when we're fully exposed and still accepted and enjoyed, that's the promise that sex holds out for us, right? And, and listen, to be sure, as a gift, for a moment, it does and it can, but it's only momentary. It can't offer that eternal longing that we have to have full acceptance. Only Jesus can offer that. And Jesus looks at us as we are fully exposed. He sees us for who we really are with all of our limitations, with all of our warts, with all of our ugliness, with all the things that we hate about ourselves. Jesus looks at that and says, yes, I delight in you. And he does it forever and ever. The thing that you're longing for in illicit sex, only Jesus can offer. And so that's why I want to turn our hearts toward him. So that sex can be put in its proper place. It's not gross. It's not God. But it is a gift to be enjoyed as a reminder of God's great love toward us. And when we use our bodies in a sexuality with a heart that is bent toward that, now we're using it in spiritual worship. Do you see how sex can be an act of worship? And this is why the Bible talks about it this way. Okay? Sex is not gross. It's not God. It's a gift. And it is redeemed by Jesus. So what would that look like if we actually believed it? Principle number two. Sex is a gift. That's principle number one. Principle number two, sex should be gratifying. Listen, God wants you to have good sex. Most of you have never heard a pastor say that, have you? Right? God wants you to have good sex. He really does. Listen, God created this thing. Right? If you go back to Genesis 2, it talks about how God created man. And it talks about how he created woman. It says that God got involved. In Genesis 1, God says, let us. And then that happens. But in Genesis 2, he says, now, lest you think that all I do is say things and things happen, let's zoom in to how I created mankind. I, I got in there in the dust of the ground and I formed man. I got my hands dirty in making man. And one of the things that God made on man is the penis. God made that, right? He didn't take a coffee break, go outside, Satan sneaks in and gives the man a penis and says, gotcha, right? (laughs) Satan didn't do that. And too many of us theologically, like, we understand that, but that's how we think theologically. Satan must have done this because it's enjoyable. And we don't talk about it, right? No, God did that. And then he created the woman from the rib of man. He didn't create him from the head of man to make woman out in front. He didn't make it from the foot of man to be down below. But from the rib of man to be right next to him, he created the woman. And he created the vagina. And there is tissue on the penis and on the vagina that is designed strictly for pleasure. And God did that. God did that. Satan didn't sneak in and do that. Why? Because he wants us to enjoy sex. Now, the, the scriptures do say, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, right? It is, what, what, the, what Paul is saying there is that this is something enjoyable. It's something enjoyable. How do I know that? When's the last time you were tempted to do something that wasn't enjoyable? 
When was the last time that you were like, you know, it's tax season and uh, I'm done with mine, so uh, does anybody else have some that I can do for them? Because it's just so fun. Straight, there are a couple of you sickos, right? You like that sort of thing. But listen, we're not normally drawn to be tempted to do things that aren't enjoyable. God created sex to be enjoyable. In fact, if you read through the book, The Song of Solomon, which, fun little fact, if you were under the age of 12 and you were a Hebrew, you were not allowed to read Song of Solomon because it's too descript in its explanation of sexuality. But if you read through the book because you're older than that, and at Missio, there's freedom, right? You might want to talk. You, you need to have some of these talks with your kids because if you don't, they're going to learn from their friends on the playground and they're not going to learn how it works properly, okay? But if you're reading through that book, it opens up with, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There's, and then there's this joy, this description of the garden and how it's opened up to her husband, how there's joy and delight, pursuit, There are all these things in Song of Solomon. Why? Because God created sexuality as something that should be enjoyed. It should be gratifying. It's something that should bring pleasure to your life. God brings these things in our life because he doesn't want us to be miserable. He wants us to enjoy his goodness. He doesn't want us to make them gods. He wants them to be little signposts as a reminder that he gives good gifts to his children. One of the things that, that sex should bring into your life is comfort. In 2 Samuel, when David and his wife discover that their baby dies, Samuel, in recording this event, says that David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He went in, he lay with her, and she conceived and bore a son and named him Solomon. Right? So that's where Solomon comes from, the comfort of David for his wife. Sometimes, in the midst of a marriage relationship, you don't have words. There's deep pain. And sex is a great way to, to bring comfort to one another. Because sex should be gratifying. God created it to be enjoyed. So let's repent of this mindset that sex is gross, and it's not something that God wants his people to enjoy. But in saying that, that needs to be qualified, right? It's not just a go after it, right? Do whatever you think feels right. There is the third principle here, which is that sex should be God-honoring. And I know that sounds redundant, right? One of the principles for God-honoring sex is to have sex that's God-honoring. I, I realize I'm being redundant, but I think it needs to be said because we, we do live in a time and a culture that is saying, you can do sex for you, your way, however you want to define it. And because it's God's design, I believe that the most joy is brought about when we express it according to God's design. So what does that look like? Well, if we look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if we read in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus himself is asked about it, if we read again in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus is asked about it, and any time it's described in the Old or the New Testament, the standard for biblical sexuality is a heterosexual monogamous marriage relationship. That's it. That's the standard for sexuality in the Bible. And so as we start to kind of dig through this and we start to ask questions that our culture is asking, what does consent mean or when do I know if I have had consent? The biblical response as we raise the benchmark, as we raise the bar is, are you married? If you're not married, according to the Bible, there can't be consent. 
I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like there, in the last five years, there have been legal proceedings to try to define what is consent. And it used to be not saying no is consent. And then it became saying yes is consent. And now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there has just been introduced legislation that is pushing for if you have taken any sort of substances, inebriating substances, any drinking a beer, um, smoking weed, anything like that, then you cannot establish consent, right? And it's getting really like tic-tac-y. Is this consent? Is this not consent? And, and the Bible has had this answer all along. Consent is when you say, I do. And then within that marriage relationship, there, then you can say yes or no. And men, if your wife says no, it means no, right? Get a yes before it's a yes in the context of a lifelong monogamous committed marriage. And so, just lest you think that I'm just kind of spouting here, here's what it says. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, what belongs to her, and likewise the wife to her husband. When Jesus is asked about this, he says, haven't you read your Bible? In the beginning, God created them male and female. So, he has established the pattern for what human sexuality should look like. And then when he wraps it up, He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, but he adds something that's not in Genesis chapter, chapter 2. It's assumed in Genesis 2, and because it's assumed, Jesus qualifies it. He says at the end, the two shall become one flesh, which gives us our benchmark. It automatically outlaws third parties in a marriage sexual relationship. It outlaws anything that's male-male or female-female. It's male-female, the two becoming one flesh. That's the biblical standard. And, and so I, I, I want to be gracious here, but I sometimes lose my mind when I hear churches very dangerously and I think, I think very irresponsibly lying to people when they understand a little bit about the Bible and can be deceptive and they say things like, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. He does but he does it in a way that, that might be a little more honest than we're willing to admit. When Jesus says that the design for human sexuality is male, female, the two as one flesh committed in a lifelong marriage relationship, what he doesn't have to do is condemn every perversion of that design. He doesn't have to. He's already condemned or at least excluded and declared that these are perversions on human sexuality. He's done it. He doesn't have to get up and say it's wrong to be a pedophiliac. Jesus never addresses that in the Bible. So should we embrace it? Of course not, because the biblical standard is one man, one woman, lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous marriage relationship where two become one, not three, not one become one, two become one. That's the standard. He doesn't have to outlaw all these things. Now, my language is strong here, and so I want to be, be really careful, church, I want to be really careful to say that it's not our job to demonize or normalize any perversions of sexuality. For whatever reason, our culture believes that when we hold this standard, that we're somehow out to get a group of people. And I think maybe, I, this hadn't been my personal experience, but it is this, the experience of, mo, uh, of many People who have experienced sexual brokenness, whether it's confusion about their own identity, their own attraction, all this sort of thing, they have felt by the church condemned. 
Now, if the condemnation comes as a result of them expecting everybody to affirm it, that's on them. But if it's come because the church has not been gracious, has not been forgiving, has not offered healing and hope and, 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 and the words of Jesus, that's on us. So we cannot demonize people who experience sexual brokenness because in reality, it's all of us. Sometimes it gets expressed in heterosexual brokenness. Sometimes it gets expressed in homosexual brokenness. But it's all brokenness. And so woe to us if we're not willing to say we have need for forgiveness and healing too. And listen, the goal of the Christian life is not heterosexuality. It's Jesus, right? He's the one that redeems. And we can so easily make sex the God that we're going after. When we minister to people who are sexually broken and say, if you would just express it in these ways, then you would find healing. That's backwards. We find healing in Jesus, and then he picks up the pieces, and he sends us in whatever direction he wants to send us. And for some of us, that's the lifelong celibacy. For some of us, it might be going from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction. It's different for all of us. Jesus is the one who determines that. But we don't want to demonize it, and then we don't want to normalize it. We don't want to tell people that there's no hope. We've got the hope of the world. Jesus came out of the grave. Amen? What can defeat us? What can be against us? Shall sexual brokenness be against us? No, Jesus came out of the tomb. So let's tell people the truth. If you're really feeling struggled by this, if you feel like it has you completely under its grasp, Jesus came out of the tomb. You can overcome this. And one of the ways that we do this is walking in the Spirit. What does walking in the Spirit look like? Self-control. That's one of those fruits. We can get control on this. Why? Because Jesus is out of the tomb. So rather than listen to ourselves, we need to preach to ourselves that Jesus is alive and that he can overcome this. We might need some help and all those sorts of things. Those are good roadblocks to sexual sin. But the chopping block is to confess the truth that Jesus is alive and he is the one that redeems us. So let's be careful that we neither demonize nor normalize perversions from sexual norms. Here's what I want to kind of wrap this up in. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24. We're going to deal with the ladies first. <clears throat> and what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks, this week is, is going to be, like I said, much more theological, philosophical. We'll continue to, to ask tougher questions as the weeks go on. And we'll, we'll get into some of the, the trappings of what about the difficulty of sex when you're in a marriage relationship and it's not so thrilling? What about sex after babies? Because that gets really tense. And I know I've ministered to a lot of you who have had really deep, hard arguments as a result of what happens there. So we're going to talk about those things. But this morning, I just want to give kind of broad principles. I'm going to start with the ladies, and I'll go with the men, because that's the biblical order. And I think the reason for that is, no matter how strong we, we push the men to lead, if a woman is not willing to be led, he might as well walk around in a field by himself. So the Bible addresses the ladies first, and here's what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm not going to park on this too long. I just want to say this. Ladies, if you're unwilling... If you're unwilling to submit to a man the way the Bible says you should, then either he is not ready or you are not ready for sex. You're not ready. And it's okay. 
You don't have to always be ready for sex. Just because your body seems to be ready doesn't mean that your spirit is ready. And if we're trying to marry these two ideas of spirit and body being spiritual worship, both things have to be ready. And a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And so you've got to be a woman who's ready for this. So in the Hannah household, we recognize that culturally and and emotionally and all these sorts of things, our kids are not ready to be playing with sexuality at young ages like they do. My daughter's in fifth grade, and, and she's having trouble with one of her friends because her, friends think it's, her friend thinks it's really cute to try to pair my daughter up with some worthless little boy that's running around that doesn't even know how to not, like, slobber anymore, right? <laughs> she's in fifth grade, right? He doesn't know, yeah. He doesn't know his backside from his elbow, if you know what I'm saying. But here we are playing these games of boying and girling and coupling up And they can't do anything about it because they're not emotionally ready to do this. And these responsibilities come with sexuality. They they come with that sense of pairing. If you're not ready to do this, you're not ready for marriage and you're not ready for sex. And so ladies, if if you're not ready to submit to a man in this way, you're you're not ready. And I want to save you all of the heartache that comes when you, you play around with sexuality and then you're heartbroken and your mind broken and you feel body broken because you've given something away to some worthless boy who isn't worth submitting to because he's certainly not leading you to Jesus. So, so that's what I'm saying, right? I'm not going into all the ins and the outs of what is submission and all that. I'm just saying if you're unwilling to submit to some dude with the rest of your life, you're not ready for sex with him. Guard yourselves. You're worth it. You are God's daughters. He has bought you with a price. So worship him with your body. Men, Ephesians 5, 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. When you read that, men, there is only the sense that, that God cherishes his bride, the church. And that's what people should think about you and your relationship to your wife. You cherish her. You see her as something precious, as a trophy to present before God. Holy, blameless. I think one of the reasons why ladies are, are unwilling or reluctant to submit is because men don't view them this way. And if we would be a church that could show the world a different way, the way of Jesus, the way of loving like Jesus does, it might be easier for ladies to say, yeah, I'll submit to that. That guy's going to take the beating for things that I've done. Yeah, I'll submit to that. And man, until you're ready to take that beating, until you're ready to leave mommy and daddy, stand on your own, sacrifice for a wife, see her as cherished, and present her before the Lord, you're not ready for sex. She's not your sex toy. She's not your servant. She's God's daughter. And when you're ready to to lead her as such, to commit to her as such, well, then you're ready to talk about marriage, and then we're ready to talk about sexuality. So here's what to do in the meantime. This is what we do among our kids. Um, We're encouraging them not to get into dating relationships, 
but go on dates. Not in fifth grade. My daughter's too young. But, but my son, Ash, he's a freshman this year. And they had the homecoming dance. And we pushed him, like, think about this. And, and he's, not, he's not there yet. He's, he's still a little bit shy and doesn't really know how to, he doesn't even know how to talk to some of the guys, right? So he's not ready, but, but we keep pushing him that direction. And I'm okay that, that, that that's where he is. Now, my, my second born, like, Kai, like, we got to watch out for you, don't we? Yeah, you know how to talk to the ladies. But what we want them to do is, is talk to them in a way that's honorable, to form good, godly relationships and friendships among men and women so that the women in my boys' lives don't see them as sexual predators and so that my boys don't look at women as sexual prey, but that we see one another as images of God who have been redeemed by the Son, who can one day enjoy the gift of sex, not avoiding it like it's gross, but not bowing down to it as if it's God. But reflecting the goodness of God's gifts to his people, that's what we want. And so we're pushing those things. Go out with a lot of different girls. Don't make them the one yet. You're not ready to handle that. Get, Get this in your brain. Grow toward this type of godliness, and then we'll keep talking. So develop lots of friendships with lots of different people. Don't make it about anything. Get to know one of them. And then as, as the Lord sparks something, like, hey, this could be something, involve a lot of people. Not just your peers, people that are a generation or two older than you. Right? I, I'm realizing this. Like, I'm, I'm not an old man. I'm not. I'm 41. I'm a very young man. But, I, but I'm looking at the leaders in our church and, and some of the, the oldest leaders in our church are, are like having their ninth and their 10th wedding anniversary, which is phenomenal. You get past year seven, you're doing really awesome because the, the biggest year that marriage breaks down, year seven. You get past that, it gets better. But, but my wife and I are, are, are 18 going on 19 years married. And so we're doing a lot of ministry among young couples and, and single folks. And, and it's true. I don't always remember what it's like to be single. Maybe I don't ever remember what it's like to be single. But, but I know what it's like to develop people into Ephesians 5 type people. I know what that's like. Develop your heart that way, right? Find your gifts. Find your gifts so that when that, some guy comes along, you're willing to submit. Guys, develop your gifts so that you can cultivate deep godliness in whatever woman that God brings across your path. Don't make marriage all about sex, Make it about the glory of God. Use your bodies as an act of spiritual worship and you will have the best sex of your life. Amen? You guys that are married and have tasted this, you've you've tasted the good gift and it can be a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's just kind of eh, right? It's not gross. It's not God. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It should be gratifying and it should glorify the Father who is in heaven. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm going to invite the, the band up, and we're going to take some time, and we're going, to, we're going to respond. So let me pray as they're making their way up, and we'll give you some space to process this before we actively respond. Father, would you forgive us for our view that sex is, is gross or that it's God? Because they are neither. Would you give us your spirit to, to quicken our hearts, to make them alive, to view sex as a good gift that can be gratifying, to give joy to your people and the glory of the goodness of your name. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.